My name is Sam. I'm the associate pastor here at Incarnation, and I just want to add my welcome to Aubrey's and invite you to turn back to page two in your service guide, back to Psalm 122. God's Word is a feast, and this is the particular dish that I want to serve up this morning. So I wonder who here has ever had a really terrible toothache? I mean, the, the serious kind of nerve-shattering toothache, the kind that transcends discomfort and makes you ponder the meaning of life, the kind that, that makes you wince when you take a bite of food the wrong way or, or breathe in a mouthful of cold air. If you have uh, had such a thing, then you know how good it is when you go to the dentist and then you come back and you can finally eat and you can drink and you can talk and you can breathe again without agony. And you can do the stuff that you love to do. You can have that glass of wine. You can have that cup of coffee or the bowl of popcorn, that cup of ice cream. Okay, pint of ice cream. You didn't think about that tooth until it was broken. But now that it's been broken and it's been restored, it's all that you can think about. How good it is to have this world-changing comfort back, which you thought you'd lost forever. For many of us, losing the ability to worship well, during the pandemic, it's felt like this. It feels like a molar has shattered and it's left a nerve exposed. The loss of worship strikes at the deepest root of a Christian's heart. And that's why Christians all over the world would sooner face persecution and death than forego it. So starting next week, every Sunday, our church is going to have three ways to worship. We'll have services, one that's going to be live-streamed, this service. We'll have an outdoor service here at the church building, just outside. And we'll have an indoor service, just like this. Three ways to come into the courts of God among the people of God. As we, as we do that, we're calling our church to remember that the ache of life without worship is not the way that we were meant to live. We have to reclaim the world-changing comfort of worship. So the question is why? Why are we making such a point of this? Well, first, because as Psalm 122 shows us, worship is an ordinary means by which God fulfills his promises. What I mean is that the Holy Spirit can show up and do crazy freaky stuff, extraordinary stuff. But worship is a critical, ordinary means by which God fulfills his promises. So if you're a note taker, you want to kind of take down notes, that's my first heading. Worship is an ordinary means by which God fulfills his promises. Now, if you want to know what kind of promises am I talking about, let me give you an example. Again, if you're taking notes, this can be a sub-point. Worship is the ordinary means by which God fulfills his promises. In other words, it's in worship that God bestows, for example, this is the sub-point, the gift of joy. 
So look at verses 1 to 2. If you've got a Bible open, if you've got that service guide, Psalm 122, verses 1 to 2, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Her feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Okay, so back up. What's happening? The psalmist is looking back on a trip to Jerusalem. He's gone on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and he's returned home, and the first thing out of his mouth is joy. Worship is ground zero for joy in the Christian life. So remember, the absence of joy in worship is not the norm for the Christian. It's an ache. It's as serious as a shattered molar. It's not something that we should tolerate. The Bible teems with God's promise of joy to his people. Now, what I'm not saying is that we should come to worship expecting for our emotional tanks to get filled, or purely for that reason. And we're going to see that in a few verses. But in worship, we really do experience joy. And I don't think we need to be so terribly sophisticated that we overcomplicate what joy is. When Scripture talks about joy, it describes clapping, loud singing, music, shouting, revelry, dancing, laughter, victory, praise. Joy is not this ephemeral happiness. It's not a chuckle at a bad joke. It's a, it's a deep belly laugh. That's joy. It's when you're gathered around with your family or with somebody else's family. You've got 25 people around this massive table. And, you know, the, the father-in-law or whoever it is at the head of the table, his chair just collapses under him. Everybody erupts in laughter and belly laughs. Joy. Of course, joy can look very different, right? It can look different for a person who's in a season of really acute suffering, of depression, in a season of grief or of loss. But it's deep. Joy is there. It, for the Christian, as a matter of fact, because God promises, it is there. Uh, found in my research for this sermon this remark, joy isn't the interior leather of the Christian life. It's not optional. Or the hymn writer, Maltby Babcock, the, the fellow who wrote This is my father's world. He wrote another hymn with these lines. Where grows the golden grain? Where faith? Where sympathy? In a furrow cut by pain. And I think we could say the same thing about joy. Joy is deeper than a smile. It's deeper than a a breezy disposition or the absence of sadness. It's And there are lots of ways that we could define joy, but here's how I'm going to define it for us this morning. Joy is a settled measured confidence in the providential care of our Heavenly Father who has created us, who's redeemed us, and who's taken care of us. A settled, measured confidence. That's joy. So in worship, God grows us in the gift of joy. That's really the first heading. But there's another reason I want to encourage you to to come back. Augustine, the great church father, said that a Christian is to be an alleluia from head to toe. So as we're coming back to worship, I want to encourage you to throw your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength back into it. And here's the second reason why. Here's the second heading. Worship helps us to see 
things the way God sees them. So uh, look at verses 3 to 5. In these verses, just the middle of the psalm, the psalmist sees a lot. He's recounting his visit to Jerusalem. And the closest thing that we could compare this to, notice how long the sentence goes on. I just want to read it out loud for effect. Jerusalem, built as a city that's bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Do you you hear that kind of? It's a little bit like the little kid who goes and spends a week at Disney World and then gets back and is like, can't wait to tell their friends about what they've just experienced. So it's all words, no punctuation. (gasps) Billy, I got to see Cinderella and Goofy and the castle. And it was, that's what the psalmist is doing here. Many, many words, very little punctuation. The psalmist is giddy after a trip. He's seen so much. And if we look closely, we'll see that worshiping in Jerusalem gave him perspective in three particular ways. First, worship taught him to look outward. Look at verse 3. Jerusalem, built as a city that's bound firmly together. Okay, so, looking outward. The, the, the literary feature that I just described is this kind of breathless revelry. This, this feature is called enjambment. It means that, that this passage starts and then just keeps going and it doesn't resolve. It just keeps building anticipation, but also what it does is it builds a sense of order. These things are tightly compact. I remember as a high school student going to Greece and seeing places that these these buildings fit together in ways I could never imagine buildings fitting together. It was like the world's greatest Lego set. And that's what he's describing. You see a picture of Jerusalem, it'll, it'll strike you in the same way. So I'm, I've been in Harrisonburg for about a year, and I know my way around pretty well now. But at first, I got mixed up all the time. Where am I going to go to lunch? I have no idea. But we've got offices uh, just facing Court Square on Main Street. So I'm, and we're reasonably high up. So I, I was able to look out and see the buildings, the row of buildings down Main Street over here. And I was able to look towards High and Market and everything. And I was able to get my bearings. And I could see how these things fit together. Gave me a sense of order, a a framework for understanding uh, our town uh, when I got disoriented. Well, the same is true of how worship works. Worship gives us a framework for navigating life when we get disoriented. It helps us to look out into the world and not to lose our heads. Worship reminds us that despite everything, God is on the throne. So, okay, worship teaches us first to look outward. But notice that the psalmist has also been taught, secondly, to look upward. Verse 4, Jerusalem built as a city that's bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The word I want you to underline is decreed. Israel goes up to worship first and foremost, not just because they want to, although the psalmist wants to, but because it's what the Lord says to do. Now, why? Why would he require it? Well, look at the end of verse 4. To give thanks to the name of the Lord. If you're an Israelite and you're going up to Jerusalem to worship, you're going for two things. It's likely uh, one of the great festivals, and these are harvest festivals in their various ways. 
So you're going up in the first place to give thanks for God's general provision, seed time and harvest. And then you'd also go up to recall God's particular saving acts in history, to look back when he led your people out of Egypt and brought you into the promised land and gave David an eternal rule. Worship, in other words, orients us to God. Now, let me just dig down into those two things, his general provision and his special providential care. Worship calls us to remember, on the one hand, that seed time and harvest are not these realities that simply get on of their own accord. God didn't create this fruitful and beautiful cosmos and then fling it out into existence and separate himself from it as if it could sustain itself as if it could spin perpetually without his sustaining grace. C.S. Lewis wrote an amazing essay on the medieval imagination. And he said, now we know scientifically that, that what the medievals were describing isn't accurate in terms of the physics. But what they did get is the notion of celestial music. And actually, if you go and read uh, scientists like Tom McLeish or people like that, you will see the same thing coming out in their work. They'll say, yeah, we know more. Celestial music. There is an order. God's, like Jared Manley Hopkins in the great poem, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. And that is what ought to animate each of us in our vocations. If you are a scientist... It ought to motivate you in your study of the natural world that it is shot through with the grandeur of God. That the world hasn't flung these things out and then it, we sustain ourselves. If you're in business, the same is true. If you're a stay-at-home mom, the same is true. If you're a teacher and you're now navigating a lot of Zoom courses, the same is true. Those Zoom courses are charged with the glory of God like shining from shook foil because the Lord has not hurled you out into existence and then separated himself from you. But worship also calls us to remember the specific acts of God in history. So next week, we're going to be using, starting a slightly different Eucharistic uh, liturgy and a little bit different communion prayers. And they're going to start with these words, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Of your tender mercy, you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. He made there, by the one oblation of himself once offered, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Now, what on earth is an oblation? It was an offering brought near to the temple altar in Jerusalem, the kind prescribed in Leviticus 7, verse 29, or Numbers chapter 18, verse 9. These oblations, these sacrifices, foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So when we gather, we gather above all to celebrate God's redeeming work through that cross, the great work, in comparison to which even the Exodus pales, the work that shows us that great three-word summary of the gospel, God saves sinners. So secondly, worship orients us to God. So worship orients us to look upward, excuse me, outward to have a framework for reality. It orients us to look upward towards God. 
And then finally, it teaches us to look forward. Look at verse 5. There, that is in Jerusalem, thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. Now, you remember I mentioned earlier uh, that verse 3 builds up, right? The energy of the kid who's been to Disney World and he comes back with breathless excitement. Now this energy explodes in verse 5. This is what the psalmist has been driving at. This is the climax. There, in Jerusalem, God sets, Eugene Peterson calls them the David thrones. The thrones of David's household, the place where his holy commands would flow out into creation through the righteous rule of his anointed king. So worship teaches us to look forward. What I mean by that is worship teaches us to envision life in accordance with the commands of God. And you see this reflected then in verses 6 to 9. The psalmist, it's not that he's just experienced joy in worship. Like he went to camp, he had a great week, he came back and he got on with his life. It's made a difference. So look at verses 6 to 9. Verse 8, I will say. Verse 9, I will seek. In worship, the, the psalmist has first delighted in the commands of God. And now he's looking forward and he finds himself in the future. After worship, it's Monday morning. And he's delighting in a life of obedience. And then I want you to notice the term that pops up again and again with the psalmist's obedience. So what is it that's supposed to flow out of worship? What is it that's supposed to come out of Sunday and animate us from Monday to Saturday? Verse 6, peace. Verse 7, peace. Verse 8, peace. Now in Scripture, peace, shalom, the Hebrew word. It doesn't just mean the absence of disruption. My, I, I had a terrible toothache. I went to the dentist and got it sorted out. I'm okay now. It's not like that. Shalom refers, it's this rich concept for God's intricate and deliberate weaving together of creation. Genesis chapter 1 is God uh, creating. He's bringing shalom into existence. Deliberate ordering. So picture an expertly weaved French braid. Shalom. Shalom can be expressed physically. So a few months ago, we were watching the partial unraveling of Aubrey's physical shalom. And had he died, it would have been the utter unraveling of his Physical shalom. Shalom can be expressed socially or relationally. So my relationship with a parent or with a spouse or with my children or even with myself, all can be ordered by God's deliberate ordering. Braided, if you like, to the extent that all sides walk together in his will and ways. Or they can be disordered. They can unravel through favoritism. Through pornography through shame, and the like. So the psalmist sees his future, the result of his worship, as a life of shalom-seeking. We come to a wellspring of, of life and joy and peace that overflows into the six days when we labor and toil. And we do it knowing 
full well that the peace which we seek, this shalom, this right ordering of our relationships with God and with ourselves and with creation and with one another, that's not something that we can manufacture or attain by ourselves. It is the gift of God. God's gift to his people, the thing that the pandemic cannot wrench away from you, but which is being tested, refined, and deepened through it, is the peace of God. Even in the midst of pandemic and poverty and deep and abiding grief over other deeper crosses. If you belong to Christ, his peace is his irrevocable gift to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This peace, this peace which is rooted in God's unchanging, eternal, gracious purposes for his children. Which is achieved through our union with Christ when we come here to hear his word and to respond and to feast by faith with thanksgiving at this table. This peace is God's irrevocable gift to you. To worship is to enter the courts of God among the people of God. This morning, we've entered the throne room of grace, and we see pods, and we see masks, and we see social distancing being practiced. Does that mean that this is what the courts of the king are really like? This is how I just want to wrap up. Does this mean that we've replaced the heavenly mansions with heavenly stanchions? I think... I worked, I worked a long time on that. Just, how do I package that just right? No, it does not. This is a good, and it is a good, but it's a partial glimpse of what the Lord has for us. If you've gotten used to the ache of life without worship, then let me remind you, as I would remind someone dear to me who had a terrible toothache in the back of their mouth, but just couldn't quite put their finger on what was wrong. You were made for more. You were made to worship. So now, uh, brothers and sisters, my prayer is that as we come back to this table, in this building for the first time in six months, you would be fed. I pray that God would not satisfy your hunger for his grace. I pray that he would deepen it. I pray that he would make you hungrier than ever. I pray that as he feeds you with his grace, he would not satisfy your appetite. I pray that he would intensify it. And I pray this for the glory of him who is our creator, our redeemer, and our friend. Amen.